Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. I am William, and I'm here with Vic. Hey. And we are uh, interviewing today Ian Brown, author, Marine, and Wargamer. And on this episode of World of Wargaming, we're going to talk about his experiences and the importance of wargaming and some of the developments going on over at his side of the world. Ian, how are you doing? I'm good. Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, welcome back. This yeah. is uh, this is tack two of this interview. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it, like I was telling Will before we started on on our podcast, there's been a couple of times where like, I don't know, like the app just crashed or whatever, or there was weird feedback and we had to do it again. But often those ones turned out better than we sort of thought the first one would do. So I think, uh, you know, silver lining. Hey, we're going to stick with that. Guys. Yeah, man. Just positive mental attitude i don't know i think it was probably chinese or russian interference it had to have been like, i mean we were really unpacking some like the geopolitical consequences of our podcast is just yeah. too much for them to handle yeah, <laughs> they, right. they were definitely scared about the, the gaming that we did yeah they the reps and sets man they just can't handle it it's like beach body um well so ian uh major ian brown um again thank you for being here um, just to give uh, a brief, I guess, overview of your body of work. Uh, you're a CH-53 pilot. Mm -hmm. You are heavily invested in wargaming. You're over at the MCU at the uh, Brute Krulak Center. You're the host of the Brute Krulak Center podcast, Brutecast, which is fantastic. Uh, I highly recommend uh, any of our listeners check it out. Um, if you could, wouldn't mind, go as depth, in-depth or as brief as you want, just tell us a little bit about yourself, sort of who Ian was prior to the Marine Corps, how what the path to the Yellow Footprints is like. Sure. Yeah, so again, you know, good to be back here for, for round two, and I'm going to do my best to make it a, a superior product. Yeah, I, I have no time. doubt. Um, but yeah, the, so, you know, the my, my, my gaming background started well before, like, I, you know, I ever signed up for the Marine Corps. Um, I think as a lot of folks on the podcast you've had, I think to include yourselves, like yeah. we play games as kids, right? So sure. I have, I got some strong memories of some of the, like the first ones I did. I, you know, I played Axis and Allies with my brothers. Oh, uh, yeah. played Risk with my brothers. Risk, there you um, go. When I, when I started branching out into some of like the expansions and add-ons to those games, my brothers lost interest because they were not nearly as into it as I was, you know, but I, I am a proud owner of, among other things, Lord of the Rings Risk, which <laughs> yeah, actually has cool. a has a lot of very interesting layers on top of the base game, and it's a really cool map of Middle Earth, and yep. uh, I always had fond memories of a, a family get-together where I convinced brothers and cousins to play that with me. It was, I think it was Christmas, and we were visiting uh, my cousin's place in Texas, and uh, what, what started as a casual game turned into, like, this hours-long slugfest with um, the, my favorite part was my youngest brother playing playing Rohan and he he mustered the Rohirrim to charge against the, <laughs> the forces of darkness so that was fun I also I I, I had some uh, some sort of more boutique wear games that are harder to find today but they were simplified so the game Battle Masters which I think was a like it was a Milton Bradley game it was a knockoff of a more complicated game system but it was a very simple miniatures game like like knights and men-at-arms and crossbowmen fighting orcs and goblins and all the forces of darkness. But what was cool was, is it was, this is new for me at least, it was a miniatures game with little plastic figures, yep. but the battle map itself was like three by four feet. It was oh, awesome. huge. Um, absolutely massive. You took out like the entire living room floor, <laughs> and the best part of the game was if you were playing the good guys, you got the mighty cannon. So my first introduction to, you know, uh, heavy indirect fire support was through that game. Um, fun part was the th like 
you placed your target on the mighty on the what you wanted to shoot at, but like you had these little like tiles you would place down for the flight of the cannonball. And as, you know, cannonballs back then did do, like sometimes it would fly over the train, sometimes it would bounce, right? And you could even, you could use it to sort of do a, a planned grazing fire, right? So mm-hmm. if, you, if you put your, flight, your path of flight over multiple enemy units, um, if the cannonball bounced or if it exploded earlier, right, you could still inflict damage. Sure. So it was, it was interesting to look, I look back at it now, I'm like, I just like to fire the mighty cannon because like it caused a lot of damage and it was fun to say fire the mighty cannon. But in retrospect, I'm like, you're you're planning like using it for different kinds of fire along the flight path and and taking advantage of those characteristics of like bouncing or exploding early. So, you know, I'm not saying that that you know that that may be a you know a young strategic genius or anything, but it's just for me, it's interesting. I look back at some of these things I did just for fun as a kid, and I realized like there was more learning going on there under the hood than I was conscious of at the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to sort of fast forward, I think that translated into some of the, the later gaming I did when I came in the Marine Corps. So, yeah, I can, you know, I, I did a lot of gaming. I, I did computer gaming, too. I was a big fan of, uh, you know, sort of standalone games like the Total War series or Civilization, because I love the, the real depth you get in those games in terms of, you know, you got to do real strategic planning. You know, you're, yeah. not just, you're not just moving your armies around. you got to build your armies. Yep. you got to sustain them. You gotta do diplomacy, defend, them. defend yeah. them. You gotta do diplomacy to make sure you don't piss off all your neighbors, and they'll dogpile on you at once. Um, but I, you know, I also like playing. In, uh, I, I played more Counter Strike in college yeah. than I'm, I'm willing to admit <laughs> in, in public here. Uh, but that was a great, you know, did it with our roommates and people on campus. It was a great time. But then I joined the Marine Corps, like um, going to TBS and then flight school afterwards. A lot of that stuff kind of went by the wayside because there's just no time. Right. Right. Yeah. You. you you could play games or learn the natops, and only one of those is really the right choice. You're right. Um, so that sort of went away for a bit, and then I came out to you know fleet to um, first squadron, and then as it happened, uh, sort of ironically, like you know, went on deployment like we all do. We went to Al Assad, and um, you know, you're busier doing operational things, but sort of in a in a weird inverse relationship you did have like spare time mm-hmm. you know on the back end right you know like you weren't flying every single night you some t- some days you fly some days you you do maintenance flights some days you stand duty and some days like they planned breaks in there to not wear you out right so in sort of in those breaks we started i started getting back into gaming with some of the people in the squadron um i i happen to be the s6 officer at the time and may or may not have uh you, you know use some of our uh, Ethernet cable materials to build an ad hoc. Xbox. Hypothetically speaking, hypothetically yeah. speaking, build an ad hoc um, Xbox network in our cans so that we could play sixteen on sixteen Halo matches in the off hours. Nice. Um, you know, but we uh, we also built like a little. I think Warcraft three was out at, out at the time. Yep. I, I remember playing that in the the, the squadron spaces. On yeah, those Blizzard lines. was my thing for like yeah. Yeah, well, quite probably a decade of my life. So yeah, StarCraft, Warcraft. Yeah, and and I, I look like I loved all those games at the time, but I again I look back on them. There's some real depth and richness um, to those games, which have, you know, which is why they sort of have been the gold standard um, mm-hmm. for a lot mm-hmm. of those things. But um, now th- there were some of those moments of Warcraft to, or Warcraft Three. I remember where I was like, I look back on on what we did in the scenario, like there's there's some interesting lessons there about how to like use some of the tools you have around you to take unconventional approaches to solving a problem. Um, one of my favorite moments, because I won this one as it happened, um, there was some, some map where like you you start on opposite sides of the map and right in the middle, there's like, there's only one path to get to your opponent's camp and you go through this like 
this ogre encampment. And because there were day and night cycles in that in that game, if if you went at nighttime, the ogres were or were awake, right? Um, so you wanted to if you were trying to like sort of like do recon on your opponent's camp, you went in the daytime um, to not not find them. So as it happened, I, I misclicked on like one of my little <laughs> my little dudes going to do ISR, and I woke up the ogres, and I thought like, oh you know, oh crap, I'm dead. But I didn't want to bring the ogres back because they would they would follow your character. Back to your camp. So, so you took going him to my camp. I went to his to, camp. Yeah. Like I was just trying to get away, right? But it turned out the ogres followed. He wasn't ready, and it just destroyed him. Um, and I won, which was great. But it all, I and I looked at him like, you know, I would never have planned on that particular attack. It was total accident happenstance. Yeah. Um, but interesting look at using the things that are in available to you in ways you may not expect. Using sure. it to your advantage rather than treating it as some like, you know, like you know, neutral third-party thing that you don't want to mess with. You can you can get it on your side if you sort of have some imagination. Um, yeah, but I mean, long story short, you know, I, I went on to do other things in the Marine Corps, you know, did a did a fact tour, um, did time CD&I, you and I yes. together. Yes, yeah. good times um, there. Yeah, which, it, as it happened, that also opened up the aperture to some of the, the publishing writing work that I did on, you know, Boyd Maneuver Warfare, all that stuff. Um, so it was a good experience. And uh, definitely appreciate Dave Wasink. Um Sort of looking the other way sometimes at the growing stack of articles and books on my desk related <laughs> yeah. to maneuver warfare, um, but uh, yeah, and you know, and back and forth back to, to squadrons and flying tours. But then after my last flying tour, um, I you know looking for a new job. Um, had from that time at CD and I'd had a bunch of interactions, sort of with some people at MCU, but also with the guys like Bruce Goodmanson doing his just you know his case method lunchtime brown bag which i thought mm-hmm. like this is great like i go and get i can pretend to be napoleon or alexander for an hour at lunchtime you know this, this is fun i'm learning about you know sort of their decision making process why they did certain things what you could do different um so with that it's sort of like a sort of like a nebulous idea when it came time to look for orders i started sort of pulling on some of those threads of the contacts i'd made back there and like hey is there anything anything at mcu maybe you know that might be an opening and then uh you know, I didn't know about the Kulak Center when I was asking those questions, but found out about it um, in the course of the inquiries. And uh, a lot of – some of it was happenstance. Some of it was um, some people, you know, going to bat for me, sight unseen, which is very humbling. But wound up there and have been there for the last three and a half years. I've got about another four or five months there before I retire, get out of the Marine Corps and go do something else. Um, you know, but in, in the time that we've been there, the stuff we're talking about now, um, I, I – they did wargaming, and I, I that was part of my interest. I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. this is great. I can go play games as part of my day job, right? Um, but about the time I came, there was when General Berger released the Commandant's Planning Guidance 2019 summertime. It had wargaming all over it. And so as it was, again, some fortunate alignments. But getting there at a center that was already doing a little bit of wargaming and then having it be a major focus area mm-hmm. of the Commandant's interest in his planning guidance, uh, it really kick-started and accelerated things that were – you know, sort of going on in a, in a smaller fashion at MCU, but really, you know, generated interest, but also applied resources that let us go and do a lot more. Um, well, so. let, let's dig into that a little bit. What has happened since the uh, Commandant's Planning Guidance of 2019 that has, uh, that you kicked off and started and expanded in the world of wargaming? Yeah, so I'm, I'll try not to retrade anything Colonel Barrett talked about since um, he's now kind of in the driver's seat of that for Marine Corps University. But uh, sort of the short version is, you know, uh, Commonwealth Planning Guidance came out in 2019. I, everybody, I'm sure, like in the different 
headquarters elements of the Marine Corps and, and the subordinate entities, you know, was going through that thing with a red pen and be like, okay, what does he want me to do, right? Which Marine Corps University did that as well. And inside the Krulak Center, we, you know, we did that in, in correlation with Marine Corps University. And like wargaming was a clear theme and focus of effort um, because my by my back of the envelope math, as a theme, um, that had, a, I think, sort of the most ink spilled on it in the planning guidance of all the different sort of themes and different tasks that were in there. You know, it took up a few pages just on wargaming. Now, wargaming is done in different ways by different people, right? The Marine Corps Warfighting Lab got the lead for sort of the, like, the analytical, you know, research, um, you know, concept development wargaming, which is, you know, feeds directly into things like Force Design 2030. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, wargaming is an educational tool. You guys have it here on the, on the, on the run sheet, you know. It's a tool to fill that deficiency in training education that the, the CPG identified, which was practicing decision-making against a thinking enemy. So inside MC and the Grillac Center, we're like, okay, um, how can we make that better and, and more formalized and, and give the students more formal touch points? Because right now it was a – at the center we ran, you know, wargaming tournaments and kind of like show-and-tells outside of the curricula, and then – Within some of the MCU schools, you had some instructors like, uh, you know, Dr. Ben Jensen and Dr. Jim Lacey, who were, the, you know, they were using war games of different kinds in their, their various courses, you know, and they, they, they had them, like, deeply immersed. They used them in a lot of detail. But there was sort of no, uh, you know, broader, like, overarching war gaming plan for the university. It was mm-hmm. like – Well, you, even for the Marine Corps, I mean, if yeah. you think about it, like, especially during the 20 years of the long war, I mean, everything was, like, so blocked training focus that the sort of like crawl walk run you know you would do your classroom instruction then you go out to the field for your basic 100 through 300 then you go out to 29 palms to do your 400 stuff but along those you know and everybody gets their checks in the box but like you said this never really ever against a thinking enemy and then ironically when the marines are done training what do they do they go to their computers and then start doing things that probably more reflect Mm-hmm. Um, tactical approaches to things against thinking enemies. Yeah, right? and, so. and, and it's kind of ironic, and it's, I don't know if irony is the right word, but, you know, you sort of, you understand up to a point why that happened, right? Like, you know, come 9-11, all right, well, we got something we got to do. We got to get ready to go do it, mm-hmm. and we have to either polish off or develop some new skills, TTPs and things, and teach them to our people right. before they go do it for And like, new equipment we, was coming yeah. down the pike all the time. Yeah, yeah, new equipment. So, like, we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of ironic that the, you know, really really good training um, evolutions that were done, you know, building block type approach, um, it, it's, it's just, again, ironic, I'm just the right word, but, like, the very, there was, like, the, the capstone you would think is, last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go, you know, against a simulated thinking enemy um, before I go against the real thinking enemy. And I, I don't think there were a lot of cases where that was the, the case. Yeah, if you could get contractor support, you could get them to come in and sort of you could create a simulated village or whatever. But th- even then they had their sort of scripted things that you're going to do. And especially if you're on your, like, say, third or fourth deployment, you kind of know – what the what the rhythm of that's going to look like? Yeah, and yeah. you know, and and that it got better over time, right? Sure, you know, absolutely. I'm, I mean, it was still great. Yeah, it was it was more than we had before, um, but uh, I don't think we, at least at scale, there was never a point where right. at scale, every marine is part of that training continuum. Every every marine, you know, down to the smallest tactical unit, 
had to go up against that thinking human enemy where, like, you don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. Like, and no, I, you don't know where they are. You don't know what they're going to do, and you got to go beat them. Right, and, and, and they, w- they could potentially break from doctrine. Like, that's, that was sort of the thing – that was always the thing that I felt, thought that sort of artificiality was always baked into the calculus was is that, well, we're just going to take the last AAR from the unit that just got back, and then we're just going to template it onto whatever – we have whether we have mm-hmm. the contractor support or not um but it was never like they weren't fr- there was no free will as part of the calculus and training yeah and you know these things happen for reasons right i'm not absolutely you know, I'm not trying to re-legislate yeah. it but the point is like you, you get to the 2019 point um where you know there's there are there was some focus shifting you know we are we're shifting away from that 20-year period, right? And as the Marine Corps has done in the past, and and DoD, right? Okay, we're shifting gears here. What is the next thing we got to be worried about? And that's where you get it. You know, go back to the you know 2018 National Defense Strategy and all the outputs that came from that, and things like Force Design 2030 and the the Commandant's Planning Guidance were all impacted and shaped by that guidance. Of, mm-hmm. Okay, well, guess what? It's China. Yeah. Right. You know, there's others out there, but that is. That's the pacing threat. That is, you know, the the worst case scenario. Start looking at that, and then you have all of these outputs out of that, and the CPG reflected that. So, you know, right, wrong, or otherwise, there was with the shifting gears, there was an opportunity to look at, okay, what do we really need to do against, you know, this isn't a bunch of under resourced, you know, highly committed but under resourced and um, you know, limited tactical, you know, impacts outside of the immediate firefight. You know, like the Taliban or, or AQI. Well, I mean, ISIS and AQI are different, but the point is, right. we're not fighting insurgents anymore that have limited resources, limited ability to project power, and yeah. they can do some highly dangerous and highly lethal things. But um, at the that's, tactical at level, at the tactical really. level, right. that's sort of contained. Right. Right. We are like, they are looking. They are equals now. Right. Like looking at the the issue of China, um, and you have to respect that that threat. And so, if uh, as part of the you know the the NDS and the CBGs like. Our material advantages, like, we may still have some, but they are diminishing, and in some places that material gap is closed or superseded by this really pure competitor. Where else do we look to gain advantage then, right? Like, if, if the stuff is no longer the thing that gets us that. And, you know, the CPG and the Wargaming piece looks at the brain, right? The cognitive advantage, the our ability to have our people make better and faster um, and more intelligent decisions than their opponents. And that's, I think, what... That was sort of the, the plan um, under Marine Corps University is, all right, how do we create um, new arenas where the students do this inside the context of their classroom, outside sometimes as well. But, you know, as part of their learning, right, PME is, is gaining cognitive advantage. Mm-hmm. So where do we start putting this stuff in to, to build that cognitive advantage, that, that, pro, that pro reps and sets kind of thing into the thing? And so that's where, the, like, the EdCom generated a, a Wargaming Master Plan um, shortly after the uh, the Commonwealth Planning Guidance came out, and it's been an execution ever since. Um, a part of that execution has been more resources. Yes, the Crew Center has got more resources, like individually on our end to do it, but the university as a whole also got more resources from higher, and that's how we have things like a Mr. Tim Barrick as a wargaming director now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with you know contractor support to help them, and a wargaming cloud that's going to turn into a a fleet asset. Like it, right now, it's going through sort of aggressive beta testing to you know make sure the the framework and the games and everything runs smoothly at increasing scales but it's going to be a fleet asset not just a pme asset um, and that all ties back to the 
the importance of wargaming from the planning guidance and gaining that cognitive advantage against a peer opponent. Awesome. So we, as you, as you mentioned, we spoke to uh, uh, Colonel Tim Barrick, but uh, what's happened since our conversation over there that uh, you can uh, enlighten us on? Sure. So I, as the, the master plan has been rolled out, right, like we've all been busier and tried to do more with wargaming. Um, so among the, th- I, I'll, I'll, I think we talked in August last year, you know, kind of at the beginning of the academic year. So, um, you know, actions had not necessarily started, but among the things that, that uh, are, I think are really worth highlighting this year for Wargaming Krulak Center and Marine Corps University have been, you know, we talked, uh, I know you, he talked to you about the cloud, Colonel Barrett talked about the Wargaming cloud. That went initial operational capability the September of October last fall. But the point is it exists, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, and this is, I think, one of the big wins from the additional resourcing given to EGCOM and then getting a Wargaming director to, to run this program because this is going to be a multi-year development thing because it's never been done before, right? Like we're taking um, – Marine Corps doesn't really have a – outside of like file sharing stuff, I want to say, not a big cloud environment um, right. that you can point to. We definitely don't have a wargaming cloud environment, and a lot of the games that were identified as being good for educational uses um, as well as some training application – they didn't exist in the cloud. They were like, you go buy the CD or you download it right. from Steam, right? You can install it on your computer locally and you're off to the races. Um, so the cloud had to be built, right? These games had to be adapted into the cloud to function. Um, the whole, uh, the cloud had to be designed, not just built, but designed so that it could be device agnostic, which is another big, big thing and big win that this is going to make it a fleet asset because we all know like our, our, our Marine Corps Enterprise Network assets or the .edu assets, there's all, you know, across DOD, there's there's firewalls, there's admin restrictions, right, of where you can and can't go. Um, well, if, if Marines are doing online classes, like the PME they're supposed to do, distance education, and you want to make these resources, make a game available as part of their curriculum, they need to be able to access it from whatever device. Yeah. So cracking that problem in itself, like, that was a big problem. Um, but the point is, it exists now, and it's been, uh, it's been stress-tested. We've been, uh, Colonel Barrick's been using... A, a, an academic year-long wargaming tournament to stress test this thing to see how many simultaneous users it can hold to make sure the games run um, perfectly every single time you open it up on the virtual machine. So that's been ongoing since, I want to say, late November, December time frame. Um, we're in, let's see, we're into round two um, using the game Warplan, which is a, uh, it, I'd say it's a, it's an operational slash strategic level computer game, but we've been tailoring some of the scenarios. But to, to, to test all the aspects of this cloud, we've had, we got students and instructors from MCU playing some of the teams. Crew Life Center's got a team in there. Um, we just dominated in the last scenario. Nice. <laughs> no big deal. Um, <laughs> what, what was just the scenario? Saying, uh, just saying. Yeah, the, the scenario was breakout from Normandy, right? So you, uh, the Cotentin Peninsula. So allies have landed, right? Like they've taken con. We're several weeks into the, the, the D-Day landings. But the Germans still have a nice little barrier stopping that breakout. So, mm-hmm. hey, when you play both the Allies and the Germans. If you're the Allies, your goal is to break out and start liberating cities. If you're the Germans, you Push should stop that, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you play you play both sides, and your final score is is tallied by how successful or not you were at, you know, liberating or maintaining control of certain mm-hmm. cities. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got team you know, MCU teams, um, teams from other you know other groups inside the Marine Corps, other sister service PME schools. Uh, have joined in. So there's a couple teams, I think, from the Joint Advanced Warfighting School that are in there right now, as well as global allies and partners. So there are Brits, Canadians, 
I think there's some Australians, and I think there's an Italian team in there as well, you know, but, you know, it, this tournament is great, it's fun, it's, you know, there's, there's rankings after every turn to see, like, who's, who's at the top, who's at the bottom, um, who the dominant individual players are, but we are, we're doing a global stress test of this thing to prepare it as a great fleet asset for um, when, it's, when it's been built out to the scale of user names, basically, that can be then disseminated across the PME curricula. So then you can assign these games as homework. You can run your own little tournaments inside your, your conference groups if you want to. Um, so that's been a, a pretty large development for, for MCU slash Kulak Center writ large is, is getting this thing built, used, and tested. Um, and, and this academic year has really been the, the stress test of this thing to get it ready for next academic year. Hey, all right, students, you're going to be, you know, fighting the battle of uh, the Normandy breakout or the battle of the bulge, which is where we are in the tournament right now, the Ardensk um, fight. You know, this is your homework now, and we can track how well you do. We can we can record and watch your turns, see the decisions that you made, and then, you know, based on the conditions of the game, who did it best, who didn't. But you know, by 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 being able to play back those decisions that are recorded by the game. You get a great after action of well, why did you go? The, why did you go left and not right? You know, right? Like, why did you? You know, you had air assets to to do close air support. Why didn't you use them? You know, you had airborne assets. Why didn't you drop them? Kind of thing like that. And it really that that assessment piece has been a huge part of of building the wargaming um, culture at Marine Corps University writ, writ large. Which it's all great if you play the game, but what did you get out of it? What did you learn? Um, and then how can you feed those lessons into a future iteration of that game? Um, so that's probably the biggest thing. Um, and, and Colonel Barrick, you probably told me he's been very busy integrating different types of games um, across the curricula as part of their formal learning. So the, the cloud is not, not quite at the point of being part of that, but he's been doing a lot of other stuff with other software and tabletop assets. So, you know, for example, today, um, literally he's setting up a it, it's a map that takes up our entire room for the global war game that the Marine Corps War College does at the end of the year, right? He's now adapting parts of the operational war game system that he designed, and I'm sure he talked about, to that global war game that um, McWar is doing anyway. Uh, but he's also been developing a, a unique tactical war game for Expeditionary Warfare School as kind of a, a knockoff of the OWS system. Still using OWS for, you know, SAW and Command and Staff College using other uh, computer-based games for those as well, like uh, Command Professional mm -hmm. Edition, which enables a, you know, Dr. Jensen used Command uh, for at SAW for ages, but Professional Edition gets you that multiplayer capability, so you're fighting against a thinking human adversary, yeah. not just the AI. Um, and then we've also had some really good inroads with um, helping others inside EdCom start to establish that habit. So... Um, I, me personally, I'm most um, I'm most proud of the work we've done with you know formerly College of Enlisted Military Education, now Mexia, but with uh, with the advanced course there over the last several years, we've worked with a a series of curriculum developers to help them support the wargaming efforts they're trying to build into the advanced course, and it's it's been great to watch because I I think all the way back to summer of 2019 when I met uh, he's retired now Gunnery Sergeant Bird Dathan Bird, uh, but he was like he was trying to just like loosen that first brick in the wall of get them to do a war game instead of a a like a paperwork drill right. or, or a PowerPoint kind of thing. So he he knocked that first brick loose, right? Established the habit pattern. And then in follow-on years, you had uh, his successor saying, okay, hey, we got the game now. 
but now the game isn't necessarily covering like the learning we want to do. Let's go find a game that does that. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've tried to offer them, you know, resources, offer them uh, play iterations so they can like, they can bring their students over, play the game in our spaces. We run it uh, because they're, their time is so much tighter than the officer PME schools, right? They're measuring weeks, not months. Right. So if if we can run a game for them, that offloads a lot of the work they have to do. So I've used the fleet, you know, FMF's now littoral commander game designed by our, our non-resident fellow Sebastian Bay as sort of the go-to mechanism for that. Um, we've also run inside MCU. We've done some like familiarization days for, you know, maybe like not the 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 instructors at the schools per se but like sort of adjacent faculty like everybody else is doing wargaming but like you know we're not familiar what it what is a wargame you mm-hmm. know what's a, a new one so we've done wargame familiarization days um like the last one i did was with the staff of the gray research center right library of the marine corps ran uh four simultaneous iterations of the shores of tripoli game which you guys i think yep. you offer via yep. the, the website mm-hmm. right yes yeah. we do yeah uh, fan, i love it as a as a simple um, introduction to war game, like very simple rule set, uh, but it also offers you a lot of really, really uh, nuanced decision making. You really have to think about the order in which you do things, and because both sides have very different goals, you know how much effort do I put into going after my goals versus stopping Them him or her from right. getting their goals? Um, and uh, I think that's an important distinction, uh, especially as we start talking about getting it over into the. Uh, you know, senior enlisted and even the junior enlisted academies because there's such a misconception. I think even today that when I talk wargaming, I'm really just talking about a chalk talk or a TDG or some sort of like tabletop exercise that doesn't really have baked into it exactly what you're talking about. These nuances of going up against a living, breathing, thinking enemy. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I I know TDGs versus war games is something on our sheet here. Um, you know, and and there's room for all of that, right? Like, I th- absolutely. There, there's there's tremendous value in if you're you know if you're around a sand table model, right? Like, trans just translating a piece of terrain from you know the screen of your phone or a map to a living to a 3D environment yeah. that you can sort of see and touch. Yeah, you're at point around. A. You need to get to point C. What do you do with B? Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, there, there's yeah. there's tremendous value in that, and then the you know the TDGs as well. Like I TDGs are are great for a lot of things because they're relatively easy to run, right? They don't take a lot of time, very minimal overhead. Like mm-hmm. you don't you don't you don't need pieces. You know, you can run TDGs with little game pieces if you want to, but you don't need them. Right? Yeah. You know, I look back at what uh, you know, uh, you know what Damien O'Connell does um, for his his workshops or what Bruce Goodmanson did in his decision forcing cases over lunchtime, right? Like, you know, we. We spent an hour of lunch fighting the defense of Paris as Napoleon. I didn't. I didn't need any pieces, right? He just put up map on the screen. This is where enemy forces are. This is what you have. Write down on a piece of paper what you think you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very low overhead. So it's great to you know you can slap that on the table if you have you know thirty minutes to an hour of free time. You know, instead of uh, you know taking a nap or I don't know, you know <laughs> right. going, to, going to get a snack or something, right? Like you can do something impactful in that time. Um, yeah, but I think the sort of the difference between sort of those things in wargaming, it's that thinking opponent on mm-hmm. the other side. And you don't need a, a super complicated, you know, thousands of pieces game that takes days or weeks to run to do that. Like something like Shores of Tripoli, I have, I'm sitting against another thinking person. I have a handful of pieces and a handful of cards, and I can play this in under an hour, but I don't know what they're going to do. Right. 
And that's that's that sort of that we were talking about before, like that final training step of I've done all the crawl, walk, run things, but it's only been against like, you know, my self-induced friction or against, you know, the scripted, you know, plan that the instructors have. That final unscripted piece uh, I think is really important. And that's that's where that's I think where war games gets you uh, that some of the other things do not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like the uh, the difference between single player and multiplayer. They're both useful, but eventually you want to get to the point where you're going against another opponent. So in a video you did with the Krulak Center, you noted that um, that there's that four essential things that war gamers need to be a good educational tool. Um, do you mind just going over those and then explaining how the Marine Corps has embraced those tenets, or potentially have they? Yeah. So the uh, I remember I think I did that video. Um, for a, a modern day Marine that didn't happen because of COVID. So mm-hmm. I wound up, I made the video and then we couldn't do it. So I was like, I'm just gonna put it on the, on the YouTube channel for people to, you know, I made the video, I want people to watch it. <laughs> yeah. um, and th- you know, this was, th- this is not a, a, a formally endorsed, you know, approach to war gaming. It was just sort of me with some of the things that I, that had jumped out to me at the time that I'd, uh, I'd been at the Krulak Center and watching really how other people have done it. Um, and so the things, you know, were, they seem, they, they seem simple, but like in execution, they can, they can still prove difficult, you know, like everything in war is simple, but the easiest thing is hard kind of thing, you know, but it's simple to say it, harder to do it. But the things that we, I tried to highlight were different levels of PME require different games. You know, the, the game that you use for your Lance Corporals and Corporals, not the global war game we're using for, right. you know, the colonels attended colonels at the war college, right? They have different levels of responsibility and decision-making. So, you want to give them games that reflect the, the level of decisions that they're going to be responsible for making. Um, you can always challenge them to think higher, and that's why I like some of the things like the, like the littoral commander because it forces you out of a very hyper-tactical thing to think about, you know, not just what your adjacent Marine units are doing, but, hey, what's the Navy doing? What is, uh, what's the Air Force doing yeah. that I could call on potentially to use to help me do my thing? I need to know what those things are, right? So it sort of gets you out of your your smaller box of, of responsibility. Um, so the second thing was the wargaming content and execution doesn't have to be massively complex to be useful. Um, you, you need the level of complexity that you need for your learning objectives, educational outcomes. And beyond that, it's okay to accept levels of abstraction because the game that models everything is unplayable. Um, mm-hmm, unplayable. Mm-hmm. And that feeds into, I'm going to skip to point number four, which is the fun part. Um, you know, a game that is unplayable or, like, it's, it's just a, 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 a pain to get through the rules to even start the game, that's not fun, right? right? And wh- why do we play games? We play games because we're, it's fun. We like to compete, right? And it, it's, this is something that um, General Charles Krulak, it, he said this when he came to visit us once shortly after I got there, and it stuck with me. And if you look back at, you know, what did General Charles Krulak do when he was commandant, right? He told people to go play war games, and he gave people permission to play computer games on Marine Corps computers, and he supported development of a Marine Corps Doom, you know, mm-hmm. variant, right? Where you took Doom and you put Marine Corps skins on the equipment and the people, and you play Doom as Marines, <laughs> right? And but when he came to talk to us, you know, his point we're talking about some of the sort of the we're standing this stuff up, right? CPG is out. What are we doing? What are we Krulak and MCU doing with the war gaming piece? And, you know, we're going through some of our plans and thoughts and, and things we've done in the past. It's like, well, th- you know, one thing you always got to remember is, like, the games are supposed to – it's got to be fun. And 
from that point onward, when I, I, you know, we started talking with other wargaming experts in our, you know, our non-resident fellow community and talking to other, you know, just other gamers who do stuff, mm-hmm. uh, it made me, it made us realize, like, fun is not just, you know, I've, I'm, I'm entertaining myself or I'm, or I'm goofing off or it's just fun to hang out with my friends or I'm enjoying time with my friends. Fun is a, it's a cognitive, mental, emotional transition that puts you more deeply into the environment that you're in and allows you to get more out of it because you've accepted that environment. Um, and it's, you know, we talked about sometimes the difference between like, I'm fighting the game versus I'm fighting the opponent. Right. If I'm if I'm getting all wrapped up around specific rule sets, or right. um, or I'm like, hey, rolling dice isn't realistic, you know, kind of that would never happen. You're fighting the game at mm-hmm. that point. But if you accept the 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 abstracted framework that the game provides, you get in there, you start getting de- getting into the learning nuances, which is what we want. Right. So that fun aspect is like, if we make a game fun and emotionally engaging. We're opening the door to deeper learning because now you're not wrapped up over I don't you know I don't like sixteen sided dice. You're like okay, I have five dice allocated to a uh, you know a freaking tomahawk maritime tomahawk strike mission that I want to do. What do I want to do with those dice? Right, like how do I want to allocate my fires? Right, that's learning occurring right there. Yeah. that's fighting. That's fighting your opponent. That's not fighting the game. And so, um, making the experience not painful. But enjoyable. It's not just. It's not just you know a good, warm, fuzzy feeling. You're enabling deeper, deeper learning because they are engaging with the uh, the the possible outcomes of the game. Yeah, they're, they're not, immersed they're not, in the scenario. Yeah, they're yeah. not fighting the environment. They're fighting the opponent right. inside of the scenario. Um, and the final, our last point in that in the video was that a lot of your best promise for successful educational wargaming comes from leveraging the talent you have around you. Um, and this is something I've I've really come to to feel strongly about as in, in simply finding out like there are a lot more gamers and interested parties out there in the Marine Corps than you might think. Um, and it can be very hard from the top down to build like institutional processes mm-hmm. and finding resources and stuff. Like if I'm building wargaming for the Marine Corps, you know, God, that's, that's a years long sure. evolution. Um, you know, that I, I may not live to see kind of thing. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like yeah. my, I'm my credit, my credit or my, my successor or their successor might be the ones to actually see that when I started because the institutional processes can take so long to go through. Yeah. So what is that? The, uh, adage, like you're planting the tree that you'll never sit under sort of thing. Yeah. That kind of yeah. thing, you know, but if the commandant says go do wargaming now, well, um, I can sit on my ass and wait for, you know, the five, ten year plan to come to fruition and then that entire time my Marines are not gaming mm-hmm. and doing the learning that Commonwealth wants me to do. Or I could be like, Hey, ladies and gentlemen, um, we would like to do a a tabletop exercise in lieu of, you know, reading an article for our unit PME this month, right? Who here is a gamer? Okay, you, you and you, what do you guys like to play? You like to play that? All right. Bring that set the next time you're gonna run the game, we're gonna do it. And you will. F- those people exist. Like, mm-hmm. You just got to go ask the question sure. and find them. And I and I think through. We were talking before about that podcast, the McTogg one, uh, with Major Zachary Swartz and Staff Sergeant David Wood. You know, they they started doing this approach at McTogg, and I forget if it was uh, if it was if it was Zach or Staff Sergeant Wood, but doing it on a Murph like a, a Marine Rotational Force Darwin thing, running having people run war games for part of their unit PME program, like just freaking ask them, right? Like, right. I, 
you know Marines are already on their phones, you know, playing like yeah. Candy Crush or you know, they're playing <laughs> Call of Duty in the barracks. Like, you know they're gaming, right? Make the gaming work for you. They're doing it anyway, right. and they will – it'll be more interesting probably than, you know, a PowerPoint brief on, on some historical battle. That, that's sort of my point about the irony of sort of the block training mindset. Uh, and the limitations where you're like, well, I really wish we could get up against the thinking enemy. And then when the Marines are off duty, they're all playing war they're games. They're playing against the thing <laughs> yeah, you know, for like, hours and hours. Maybe right? we could merge these two things together. I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're doing it. Make them, you know, just tell ask them to do the thing they like to do yeah. anyway in a different environment. Right. Um, and, you know, one, you're getting after that deeper learning. But also you get to you get to leverage that. You know, we're talking about talent management these days, right? You know. It's more than just the cookie cutter. I can do all the things in the TNR, or I've checked all my boxes on the fit rep. Like there are useful yeah, skills. Yeah, the MCIs. Yeah, there's useful skills outside of that mm-hmm. um, that are not necessarily evaluated in a formal fashion, but can make the evaluated stuff better. So let's let's open the aperture, find out what these individual talents are, and leverage them because they exist. They're doing it anyway, um, and. <laughs> You make instead of you having to plan like a unit PME thing, make somebody else plan it, right? Like make <laughs> right. your own life easier right. and not think that you have to do all these things. Um, makes you know, and it gives the chance for Marines to highlight the good things that they can do. Yeah, right. Like, that's say, show like, off. Right, like hey, uh, we got to do a PowerPoint presentation on some battle. They're like, fuck. You're like, hey, why don't you? Yeah, be the game yeah, master gonna, for this thing that you already do and love. Like, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're gonna fight yeah. that battle. And, yeah. and the cool way thing about it is like the cheat codes are just history books for especially historical <laughs> right. war gaming. If you want to you know figure out what what a way to go around this or like the the important terrain or whatever, you just learn yeah, about learn it, and then it, and yeah. then it helps your gaming better. I mean, every time I, I do a historical game, I bare minimum I'll do the Wikipedia. Okay, how did this battle go? And then. If if I um, get further interested, you know, I get books or podcasts or YouTube videos about it, and it yeah. it tricks you. It tricks you. <laughs> learning's fun, it's, man. It is totally true. That's Mont- that's Montessori, right? They yeah. Trick trick the kids into learning. <laughs> yeah, and the and I think the you know the historical gaming, um, you know, that was our, on our thing here. Um, and I know uh, Don Vanegar, he went to it extensively, but uh, I've I've seen this in like some people are sort of like I you know I don't want to play the like the five thousand hex encounter historical battle of. Gettysburg at like the squad level, right? <laughs> you know, but depending on the game, um, they can be very useful for not just like helping you building your own decision making skills and and defeating the your thinking opponent, but it helps you understand better why some of the people made the decisions that they did that seem kind of bonkers. Like you know, if you're just reading about it, um, and a, a couple of examples I'll throw out there are: there's one, I think it was a a game that one of Sebastian's grad students at Georgetown brought. We did like a a game demo day at the Krulak Center where we, like, his students are building and playtesting these games. And we just, hey, you want to playtest? Come down and run them for us, right? We'll bring some students and faculty for you. One of them had designed a game about the Peloponnesian War. And, you know, big thing about the Peloponnesian War is why did the Athenians go to freaking Sicily, right? Like, diversion of resources. They lost huge amounts of the conventional forces. It was not in the main theater, right? But then when they, in building the game, you realize, like, there were some pretty concrete, like, you know, I think especially food resources yeah, in Sicily safe, yeah, that resources, were important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, hey, guess what the players eventually do? They finally be like, okay, based on my risk calculus, I need I need that food more than I don't. I'm going to go to Sicily, right? And all of a sudden you understand there was a rationale mm-hmm. behind that. And it was actually not every historical rationale is a, is, a, is a good one, right? 
But in this case, you understand, like, there was a good reason for the Athenians to go do that. Didn't work out, right? But right. it was not this totally, like, you know, what a bunch of freaking idiots. Yeah, they were just half-cocked. Just, yeah, yeah. Let's go over here now. I mean, war, war is a gamble, and sometimes you need to gamble against long odds. And, like, within, like with, with poker or anything, you know you could have a great hand, great, but someone might just have something better. Yeah, yeah. Or you tried to call a bluff and it wasn't there. Yeah, any of those myriad of things. Yeah, you know, every uh, every decision you make is contingent on other things in warfare, but there are often reasons why people did the things that they did in certain battles that don't seem to make sense to us, but when you're standing there in their imaginary shoes being like, I need freaking food to keep fighting the Spartans. I got to go find it from somewhere else because we spent the last several years burning each other's farms, right? Yeah. I got no more food here. I got to go get it from somewhere else. Hey, there's food in Sicily. Let's go after it. Um, you know, again, it didn't work out, but you understand the why yeah. um, behind certain things. Well, when it comes to, I guess, to your point, William, about, you know, there are cheat codes uh, that we can see just by doing uh, the learning aspect of it. Um, so, Ian, you wrote the book um, New Conception of War, John Boyd, U.S. Marines, and Maneuver Warfare. A.K.A. the ultimate cheat code. Yeah, so, so, exactly. Yeah, the ultimate cheat code. So, yeah, so um, what about sort of the process of the research and the writing um, did either influence your current war game, wargaming or the wargaming experience you had prior to writing that book played? Like, were those two in conversation with each other, or did one sort of launch the next? So – um, the the book and the re- and the research that fit into it, it it preceded my time at the Kulak Center. Like uh, the book was published, twenty eighteen. I didn't get to the center until twenty nineteen, and I, you know, until I stepped foot in the center, I didn't. I had a, you know, very superficial idea of the scope of their activities. But moving forward, um, I one I I've I've tried to use wargaming more in some of the the course iterations of some courses where I'm teaching about maneuver warfare. So the Beyond Boyd course that the Continuing Education Program offers at Exhibition Area Warfare School, they've run it uh, periodically as a an enhancement program, like kind of an extracurricular mm-hmm. school activity. Mm-hmm. So, well, as it happens, um, there's like a, a TDG decision forcing case module in that curriculum. So this last time around, I replaced it with a war game, right? And, t- and be- all the things we talk about, I'm like, this is your this is your prac app. You know, we're talking about tempo. We're talking about deception. We're talking about um, you know, having a plan, but then trusting your subordinates to execute that overall. So I gave them a littoral commander scenario that I developed for as an introductory scenario for the Kulak Center when we run these things. Um, and the, the thing that I've started adding to when we run these games is a game clock. I got, I got kitchen timers that uh, give each side, like, you have seven minutes to do all of the actions that are available to you based on the scenario. Um, and if you don't talk to your teammates, if you don't think about what you want to do on the next turn, when those seven minutes start, if you're like, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do, let's talk about it. Um, <laughs> if you spend, if your first two players like use six out of those seven minutes to make their decisions, they've just screwed over the remaining three. And I don't care. I'm not giving you more time because you need to make decisions yeah. in a timely fashion. Yeah. And meanwhile, if your opponent, we talk about tempo and maneuver warfare. If your opponent's over there, like they've figured out kind of what they want to do, they've they've decided what order they want to sequence stuff in. They're knocking out, boom, boom, boom. Right, and so now not only did you not talk about what your plan was, and you're just like uh, stumbling along, they knew what their plan was, and now they are throwing more monkey wrenches into your very poorly developed plan, <laughs> and making it that much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so you're you're seeing tempo 
and the advantages and disadvantages of it of it playing out in in that game environment. So like you're you're seeing the lessons that we've just yeah. talked about yeah. the last six nights. Um, and, and but to, in sort of a, a wider scope, I look at wargaming is building the orientation piece of the OODA loop, right? And the in doing the book research, the thing that really jumped out at me was you know one we did we collectively don't have a great understanding of what the OODA loop is and how it operates, but two, the the OODA loop has always been, or the orientation piece in the OODA loop is often described, and this is sort of my experience basically growing up in the Marine Corps until I got to the point where I'm like, hey, I'm going to do some research on this, mm-hmm. is you're like, you see stuff, and then you orient on it. And what that orient means is very ill-defined. Yes, and it's nebulous. Often, yeah. yeah, it's often some like, okay, I, I look, and then I sort of assess, and then I and then I move on, right? Um, you get into the the really the richness of what Boyd was getting at and orientation is all of the lenses through which you view the problem and those lenses are not just like kind of in the spur of the moment you know what do I think that I'm seeing those lenses are built on all kinds of different pillars of experience of training um, of even your own like your physical condition you know like how well hydrated are you that day right like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. am I amped up on coffee or was I drinking hard last night those are all lenses in how you do that assessment of the thing you're seeing and, and one of his points is, like, your lenses are better when you have a wider repertoire of experience to draw from. Wargaming is building that experience. It's giving mm-hmm. you free experience, free reps and sets, free iterations of critical thinking and making decisions over and over and over again under a whole bunch of different circumstances so that when you're in that real-world situation and you observe something, you've got this, like, this deep well of experience and and habit and um, implicit immediate reaction that you have you have built ready to apply to it um you control that and so what you really what you should be doing from the moment you step foot on those yellow footprints forward is building that orientation finding opportunities to make those lenses wider deeper uh richer whatever you want to say but just having a much bigger library in your brain that Mm -hmm. you can draw you know this is not exactly what I saw back in this training exercise, you know, but I remember this, this, and this, I'll put these things together in this order, boom, there's my decision, and then I act on it. Um, so Wargaming is just, it's building out your orientation. It's giving you free experience, free knowledge. You're learning about yourself. You're learning about your friendly teammates. You're learning about your opponents and their actions. You're seeing things that you've never seen before, and then you bring all of that with you into that moment of decision, you know, where all that stuff becomes really, really important. Um, so it's the moment to orient is not like uh, I see something what do I do about it mm-hmm. it's I have I've got a you know the general Maddox talked about the 3,000 or 5,000 year old mind right wargaming is building that mind for you that's it's one aspect of doing it there's many different ways of expanding your orientation but that is a way because like the next step in UDA is decide and if you have no habit pattern of making decisions um, especially with time constraints right you were going to fail in that moment of crisis because you're thinking about how to decide instead of responding instinctually based on the deep well of orientation that you've built. So every war game iteration I see is this is you're just you're making your orientation, you're making those lenses a little bit wider, a little bit clearer, and you're you're just building that deeper repository that you get to draw on when you really need it. Like the moment of action is not when you need to be like, oh, I should have done more reading. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, a- along those same lines, then, when we start looking at, like, you know, I guess feedback loops, 
as you know, as you're building your, you know, so sharpening your tools or building your library or whatever metaphor, uh, you know, applies best uh, here. Um, you know, we, we talked about a little bit before the show uh, with Dr. Hunziker coming on. He runs some war games over there at the um, at uh, Mason at his Shar Institute. Um, one of the things he also has a book uh, that talks about sort of uh, learning during war. What kind of feedback or analytics do we get from war games? Are they are they uh, as and I don't want to be belittling here, but are, are they as sort of myopic as if you win, then you did this better? Or is there a way that it can sort of parse out the nuance and say that kind of like the Germans in World War One, like, yes, you lost the campaign, but your ability to learn was a, on a much steeper grade than your opponent who maybe was relying on numbers or terrain. Yeah. yeah is it making any sense yeah, in no, that question? It, it does. And this okay. actually gets into uh, – a much deeper philosophical discussion about like what does wargaming do or not do, um, and I'm not going to try and repeat that. But the in the educational wargaming lane, you know, something that we the center and I know Colonel Barrick is conscious of it, and it's something that all the other wargaming experts that I've interacted with are conscious of it is like the edu so educational wargames in particular and wargames in general are not are not predictive of any one outcome um, because you could take you could take the same game the same players and run it a bunch of other times, you might get a bunch of different outcomes. So to say that you're like, that you're wargaming like, you know, like the Doctor Strange, the one in 16 million future options, <laughs> right, that's gonna right. get you to win, right? That's not what wargaming is gonna get you. And in, if you go into it with that perspective, uh, you're gonna feel let down because the future probably won't happen. And then you're gonna be like, this is pointless, wargaming sucks kind of thing. It's not predictive, but it's, it, uh, it, it does a few things It lets you understand the different aspects of a problem better um it helps you it helps you build those decision making critical thinking skills because like any habit right like i'm not going to get stronger at the gym if i don't go to the gym right right my brain is not going to get stronger if i don't exercise it my decision making skills are not going to get better if i don't make decisions right so in in some ways it's just you're you're working that muscle and the, the decisions can almost be beside the point the point is you're making decisions um but along with that to sort of the german point right like it also, while you're building decision-making habits, you're also building habits of adaptability, um, which I think from the, from the educational wargaming perspective side, I mean, this is separate from like analytical, operational, you know, wargaming research type stuff. It is um, learning how to continue to try and achieve your objective when your plan gets blown up mm -hmm. and goes out the window. And that's where having that thinking human opponent is so important because your own, your opponent will do things you don't expect. They will break doctrine, right? Like you said at the right at the beginning, um, you know they'll um, and and sort of, and sort of tying this back to you know um, Dr. Hunter said, but also watching the war in Ukraine is we've been seeing uh, adaptability on the battlefield and it, not so much whether one side is like you know um, objectively better at it, but it gets back to that that relational thing, right? Like there's relational tempo. It's not objective tempo. It's relational always to your opponent. If you can adapt better than your opponent, mm -hmm. that's where the advantage lies. It doesn't mean you're, you're smarter or, you know, you have better resources or, or processes per se, but um, if you can do it more quickly and um, with, with better 
taking taking the mistakes you made the first time yeah. and fix them and going on. If you can do that better than your opponent, that's where that advantage lies. Um, and so that's another thing. Like in every war game is a mini mini laboratory of adaptation. Sure. Um, yeah, that and, doesn't cost lives. Yeah, as you're doing it. Yeah, it doesn't cost lives. <laughs> like and and to that, you know, making mistakes and learning from them. You want to make those mistakes when it doesn't cost lives, when it doesn't cost you material resources, when it doesn't cost you national treasure. You know, it's sort of the approach, I think, of red flag, the Air Force exercise. Yeah. Like, they want you to die the first 10 times in the exercise. So time 11, when you go air to air for real with somebody, like, you've, you've gotten your bad habits out of the way, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you've built that repository of experience, right. that decision-making capability, um, that ability to adapt to the opponent that's in front of you. You've, you've, you've built that. And you built it on your mistakes. Um, really, I like. Uh, I think some of the most valuable things that come out of war games are the times that you lose, mm-hmm. because it forces you to reflect on what could I have done better? How could we have built our plan better? How could we have managed and sequenced our assets better? You know, you know, you there, you know, Captain, whatever. You were too slow making decisions, right? Next time we do this, you got to be faster. Like, and, and I, I don't care what your decision is, just freaking make one, <laughs> right? Um, you get all that stuff. You want to get that out of the way. You want to get the failures out of the way uh, before it really matters in game time. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same reason football teams practice in scrimmage before yep. you go play, right? Your your opponent's always going to do different stuff, but if you're going against your practice squad, that's a thinking human opponent. Yeah. They're going to force you to adapt to find the flaws in your plays and your game plan, and you're not going to find them all, right? And your opponent's always going to do something you don't expect, but at least you have that habit pattern of, of knowing how to adapt. And it's it's that knowing how to adapt, that habit pattern of of making decisions, and, and knowing that you have to make that within a certain time frame. Um, like the ultimate decision you make, it may be it may be right, it may be wrong, it may be not be. But the point is, you are you're ready to do that. You're ready to make those decisions. You're ready to adapt because you've you've built that muscle, that mm-hmm. mental muscle in your brain. Yeah. Um, so I think the you know whether whether your your plan goes exactly as you as you planned it. Or you lose, um, complete, you know, catastrophically, is is less important than the the habit patterns you build coming out of there. And hopefully, yeah, you're always going to make mistakes, but hopefully, you're not making the same ones in the next iteration and the next iteration. <laughs> right, right. You right. make new mistakes because um, that because that's that proves that you learned from your past ones. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So as we start to uh, wrap it up a little bit, um, what future initiatives do you have coming up, or anything that's going on that uh, you could uh, potentially give a hint on? So, uh, from from the Krulak Center side, we are um, you know getting close to the end of the academic year. So there's a bunch of uh, and all the schools do sort of end of year major exercises, and the center, Mr. Barrick especially, are going to be very busy supporting that. Um, he's also getting ready for Modern Day Marine. You know, which, yep. uh, for those listeners out there, there's going to be uh, I I don't know all the details of the structure because Colonel Barrick's playing that, but you're going to have gaming opportunities at Modern Day Marine. He's going to be bringing. Uh, I believe OWS. I'm not sure if they're if we're going to try and have cloud digital cloud wargaming available. But the point is, you can game at the upcoming Modern Day Marine. That's that's a big thing that that's huge, uh, that he's yeah. working towards. Um, from a personal perspective, like I said, I, I retire in a few months. Um, I'm I'm looking to keep doing wargaming. You know, professional. going out to pasture, man. You know, oh, I'm Welcome. Gonna, I've already made promises. Like you know, <laughs> deep down the road, I'm I'm going to be busy, but. Um, you know, I, I'm going to keep doing wargaming in a not a military capacity, but in hopefully a supporting military awesome. capacity. I've got um, I'm now more than a year behind on my next book for for McCuff. Um, slowly chipping away at that, but it's going to be a 
um, not a full sequel to to, uh, to New Conception of War, but taking some of the primary source material, specifically uh, all of Boyd's presentations, they're recorded at the History Division, turning those into written transcripts, and then publishing them in in a one-stop shop so that we can f- finally have, you know, a not the totality of Boyd's thought, but like sort of the, his presentations were his big avenue for how he how he taught, mm-hmm. right? How he shared his ideas. So having them in a written fashion that is searchable, um, I think, is going to be very very important. One for like sort of any follow-on researchers, like you know, if I were if I were to follow somebody and I was doing research on Boyd, man, it would be great to have something that I can like read and search a PDF on and look for keywords and key ideas rather than trying to you know, interpret this really scratchy 1980s cassette to digital transfer recording, you know, where the mic was at the back of the room. And he's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just, you know, it, it, it's there, but it's super painful. Um, so hopefully it, it, it acts as a, a, a research enabler for, for other people. Um, but also one of my sort of my, my pet peeves in getting to talk about Boyd is, you know, is, is interpreting or misinterpreting what people think he did or didn't say. And the problem is, like, it's very hard to push back against that because, like, he didn't write a lot down. He was a he was a YouTube star in a in an analog <laughs> right. era, right? Typewriter era. <laughs> like, if he were alive today, like, he'd be knocking out TED talks, you know, at the cyclic rate. But he wasn't. Um, but um, I wanna I wanna remove that excuse for misinterpretation by being, hey, this is what he said because I we transcribed it, put it all down. You can search it. Now you can agree or disagree with what he actually said. You know, I, I don't care. Like, he's not perfect, no theorist, got it all right the whole time. But we can at least engage with the ideas that he said and not your interpretation through, like, three or four different levels mm-hmm. of, you know, second, third-order sources. Right, right. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, because I'm – this is – it's Wargaming, and I'm I'm excited about it, although it's, it's going to be a lot of work, is I'm trying to develop my own war game, um, a card game system. Yeah. Similar to – I know more people are probably familiar with Magic the Gathering, but, f- like, my philosophical inspiration is the Star Wars customizable card game back from, like, the 1990s that Decipher put out. And um, I love Star Wars, so I, I love Star Wars. But I am of looking... Of course you do. Yeah, of course I do. Um, <laughs> don't get me started on Star Wars gaming. But uh, in going through the stuff at the Krulak Center and then looking at some of these challenges of how do you get people to do more wargaming, what are some of the, the obstacles? Um, resource overhead, time complexity, the amount of crap that's on the table, you know, how many mm-hmm. counters do I have to do? How right. many different types of dice do I need? Do I need to make a giant map? Um, and I've been watching different people make a pr- make efforts to, like, reduce that overhead, reduce that barrier to entry. You know, and I look at Sebastian's game, that's a great example, right? You know, one, not only is, did he design a game for Marines, you know, based on Marine current or future concepts, but his philosophy was, I want to make it simple with relatively simple rule set, you don't need a computer, don't need a network. All you need is like a flat table, right? Flat table and a light source um, to put the map and the pieces out. So, uh, you know, that was great. But then I, th- I thought back to the Star Wars. I'm like, to play that game, all you needed was a deck of 60 cards, you know, maybe two to three inches thick. That was it, right? No other dice, no other tokens, no mm-hmm. no, no box of components you got to take with you. Um, you. You literally needed 60 cards, a flat surface, and a light source. So I sort of I'm like I'm trying to firewall that like that that reducing that material overhead um, while also like using it to to help Marines talk about maneuver warfare. Like yeah. I'm calling it maneuver warfare the card game. Um, <laughs> nice. How the trademark's gonna work, I'm not sure. I put a hashtag in front of maneuver warfare, so maybe that'll help me. 
you know, but I you know nobody has the copyright to maneuver, so I think I'll be okay. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I designed some of the rules and the components using terminology from MCDP1, right? So I talk about, um, you know, wars, it's a clash of wills, right? I, there's a stack of cards that I call the will deck, um, you know, not named <laughs> after you, although as I think about it now, it's maybe I'll, I'll give you a shout out there, but it's, Appreciate it, is, it. it is your will. It is your currency for doing things in the game. You spend your will to do certain activities. Um, some you will lose will because right like the whole point of going after your opponent's will to fight right. is to take to make them stop deplete fighting. it yeah yeah so your goal is to deplete the will deck of your opponent while you still have enough to do the things you want to do um, and then we also talk about mul like multi-domain operations right whether you like that phrasing or not it's the framework for how we look at at fighting in different areas today so your games your game battlefield are different domains you have land, maritime, um, space and information domains, um, and then subsurface and aviation, you know, airspace type things. That's where the fighting happens. Um, and, and like the information in the space domain there, I've separated them from the like sort of the terrestrial domains, mm -hmm. but the things you put in there still affect what you do For, down of there. Of course, yeah. And vice versa. So, um, and then I also, I wanted to force sort of that pre-mission planning where, so the Star Wars card game, and I don't play, I haven't really played Magic, so this may or not be true, I'm not sure. But, like, you usually randomize your deck before you play the game, mm -hmm. you know, right, to make it fair. Um, I went the opposite way. I said, you get you get X number of cards in your deck. You can build that order Stack out the it, way yeah. you want it, mm -hmm. right? That is your pre-mission plan. That's your tip fit or whatever you want to call it, right? Because we don't just walk blindly into right. a crisis or a battle without a plan. We have a plan. We'll have to deviate, and it may all go out the window, but... There's an order of things. There's there's things you want on the battlefield first, second, third, and so forth. You need your logistics to support that. So logistics better be near the top of your deck, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're not going to have anything to shoot with or eat. So you can build you build the order of your deck, and then how you adapt that pre-made plan based on what your opponent does becomes a key piece of the gameplay because you're gonna one you're gonna have to change it based on what they do, and also um, there's I put an element of randomization into like the the domain lay down for where you're going to fight. So you, I think uh, you get to pick a couple of domains, you know, sort of optimized to your deck. So if your deck is land heavy, right, you get to pick a couple of land domains to go in there. Um, the rest of it is randomized, though. So, well, crap, there's uh, there's only one land domain. It's all maritime, the rest of it. I didn't bring a lot of ships. I'm going to have to find a new way to use what I have with me because I can't go back and ask for more. Mm -hmm. um, I have what I brought with me, and I have to use it. Um, it's like EABO on standing forces, man. Yeah. I, there is a card literally called Expeditionary Advanced Base. It's a logistics support card. Um, but then the last thing, and I, I, I will, I'm mindful of the time, but we had a point on here talking about, you know, morality while you're playing games, about ethical decision-making. And that's actually an area that is not included in a lot of war games. Sure. And in, in my time in the center, we, we collectively been like, we, we need to think about that more. Because we're not just fighting another opponent. There are people on that battlefield. Yeah. Every almost everywhere we go, and if we're talking about some of these large, like looking at Ukraine, um, yeah. or the or the Taiwan, yeah, you know, the Taiwan scenario, scenarios. There are millions of people there. They are going to impact what you do on the battlefield. Yeah. You cannot just pretend that they're not there, and that you can operate without those considerations. So, um, what I what I did in this card game is in some of the domains there, like um, especially urban domains, there's towns, cities. I think I put ports uh, ports in there as well. Point is, places people live. Mm -hmm. There are will penalties to yourself if you start fighting in those domains. It's not just it, – it, it costs you a, a potentially permanent 
loss to cross that line knowing you might be causing civilian casualties. Um, conversely, I've given you some cards where if you do like humanitarian assistance or like like first responder actions, you can get some of your willpower, oh, nice. your will cards back because you're doing something positive right. and good. Rather than fighting there, you're trying to make it better. Um, anyway, it is, it's, it's in very much a prototyping phase right now. It's It's been more difficult to do playtesting because I've watching lessons learned and third rails grabbed by others who have been in uniform designing games like you you gotta have almost like this this double think barrier in your brain of um i can't do anything that potentially puts like you know government imprint or government intellectual property in it yeah because then the government can claim it as their their thing um so i've been having to do this all entirely in my off hours outside of the office, um, looking for playtest opportunities outside of the office to make sure that that, that line is clean because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's important for, you know, it's a government doesn't want that problem. You know, they don't want people coming at them with potential, you know, you know, either legal or bad publicity, what have you, you know, which is fair, right? And it's also better for the game designer because you don't want that problem. Right. Um, you don't want somebody to come say, yeah, that actually belongs to the Marine Corps. Um, you can't sell it or give it to anybody. Right. right? That's ours now. So... It's it's been a it's been a harder um, playtesting process, but um, it's I've still it's been interesting to me because I've uh, I've never designed a game before. Like I've built a lot of scenarios on existing game mechanics. This is my first attempt to design something new. Um, I like card games. Um, I'm using artificial intelligence to generate the artwork for it. So oh, nice. Every every image is new, never to be repeated, um, and it helps to give us sort of like a cool futuristic look. Sure. So, it's yeah so it's and you have to worry about the propriety issues like you're talking about yeah well there there's other like there are deeper propriety you know <laughs> ip things potentially the ai that um you know who knows but i i believe i'm using it in a way that that's fair and doesn't cross any of those lines um and uh yeah my hope is it's, it's slowly getting out there to be play tested like you can order it directly from a site i built on game crafter which does the manufacturer like they they physically make the pieces you just send them your images and they'll do it um, you know, so it's slowly getting out there and I'm, I don't have any like super grand plans for it, but it, I just hope that it's played. And I hope that if, if it gets in the hands of Marines, it, it like the Toral commander and the operational war game system and all these other things. So it wants to be like a useful tool for helping to understand the problems that they have to go face and giving them a tool that is not like a burden yeah. to use something right. that is easy, accessible, doesn't require all kinds of extra overhead or time. Or a or like a game facilitator, right? Like you, the Star Wars card game in Magic, your players are your own facilitators, right? Mm-hmm. You can do it yourself. You don't need some some game Moderator, master to come right, in right. to come in and do it. And I think that's one of those other barriers to like to getting wargaming out to the fleet that we want to try and remove is let them run it themselves. You, like there's a limited number of possible facilitators out there. Um, they're not always going to be available to you when you want them. So do it if you can do it yourself. You're doing the gaming that the commandant wants you to do. You know that we we think is valuable for developing that cognitive advantage, that mental overmatch, um, and you you can do it yourselves, right, on your own time when you want to, and you don't need a bunch of extra money or resources or mm-hmm. stuff to go do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome, Ian. Thank you for coming in today, and uh, we'll hopefully uh, get you on the show again and talk more about uh, your your completed game whenever you, you uh, get it finished. For but sure. Uh, Tell our listeners, uh, keep getting your reps and sets in by Wargaming and tune in again in a couple weeks to hear our next uh, segment of World of Wargaming. Awesome. Thanks again, man, for coming in. Yeah, again, thank you for the opportunity and I look forward to having to share it with your audience. Sweet. 
Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.